You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. The US stock market's levitation act over the last eight years has been led by a handful of stocks, several of which have, for the most part, defied traditional valuation metrics. The notorious FANG stocks have pushed the market deeper and deeper into unexplored territory as the twin phenomena of zero interest rates and the rise of passive investing have caused flows into these behemoths to create a self-perpetuating feedback loop. Amidst the hoopla, Another company which could find no place amongst the hot acronym stocks has also attracted the kind of fevered backing which only happens at bubble tops. Investors enamoured with the sleek, sexy products which the company has been putting into customers' hands have ignored billions in regular capital raises, further billions in losses, and a series of production line issues for which other companies have been sorely punished over the years, and have bid the stock up to a level which, to many bewildered observers, defies all logic. Led by a charismatic CEO who polarises opinion like few others and surrounded by hype and constant promises of both future profits and outrageous technological advancements, the company has flourished. But, in recent months, the tide of public opinion seems to be slowly turning. What happens next will decide whether the company's acolytes or its detractors win out and, in many people's eyes, whether its CEO will end up with far bigger issues about which to be concerned than a lack of profitability. This week, on Adventures in Finance, the case against Tesla. So there, there are many elements that, uh, of, of the design. It's, uh, it's difficult to actually say exactly um, what makes it good, but except to say that we, we agonize over every curve, over every detail, every corner. The design, while on the outside it looks okay, inside it's, it's a disaster. There's a touch screen which is offset to the right and below the driver. So, you know, I've been joking about it and, and calling it the, the texting while driving mobile, which is what it is. I mean, I, so I, I think it's a terrible design. Uh, in the future, well, really, future being now, um, that uh, the cars will be increasingly autonomous. So you won't really need to look at an instrument panel all that often. Uh, you'll be able to do whatever you want. Um, you'll be able to watch a movie, uh, talk to friends, go to sleep. With a wink and a nod, they encouraged people to drive it without any hands. Tesla actually actively promoted it. Then that guy got killed doing it exactly that way uh, down south. The question I get asked, um, uh, where is my Model 3? Um, well, <laughs> we're, we're building the cars as fast as we can. So there's actually, let's see, there's actually a total of, of, of 50 production cars that we've made this month. 
And we're going to do everything we possibly can to get you the car as soon as possible. Uh, so uh, we're going to work day and night to, to do right by the, by the loyalty that you've shown us. Thank you for doing that. Now, as far as production problems, you know, Musk promised, I don't know, two years ago, he'd have this thing in production this past summer. And then he held a big party to show that it was in production. But it's really not in production. When he made that promise, anyone who knew anything in the automotive industry said it would take a year longer to actually get this thing into production due to the testing involved. Well, he just, he didn't test it. Not only did he not test, apparently, the assembly line, but he didn't even properly test the car. I mean, and frankly, we're going to be in production hell. Um, <laughs> welcome, welcome. <laughs> welcome to production hell. Today is the 2nd of November 2017 and welcome to episode 40 of Adventures in Finance. Where has the year gone? Uh, To my right by about 6,000 miles is my trusty producer, James. Or is it to your left by about 6,000 miles? Because well, you're you literally on the other side of the world for me right now. We can go. We could go either way. We could go either way. As as can every podcast we record. Tell me, mate. Not too bad. I'm trying to work out. Are you tomorrow or are you yesterday? I think I'm your yesterday and you're my tomorrow. That's the most romantic thing anybody's ever said to me. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. Now, obviously, a quick update on the Twitter followers. Where are we up to? Uh, we are approaching, and I looked this up earlier, but I think it might have actually uh, jumped up by a couple of numbers. I'm yeah, currently at 232 followers. Keep 232. On I, I, I'm going to keep asking you this until we get a week where they've actually gone down, so we can work out when you plateau. This is a, this is a unique social experiment we're conducting here. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, how that'll affect me, actually. Um, uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Well, we will, but I, I wouldn't get too caught up in it, my friend. I don't, I don't think... Uh, if, if, the, if your Twitter followers decline, it doesn't mean that other people don't love you. Well, there is one thing that I'm finding about Twitter is that I'm discovering a lot of really cool stuff, but also a lot of really weird things out there. Like, people are weird. Really Welcome. weird. Welcome to Twitter, my friend. Um, right, listen, you and I can sit and talk about Twitter all day long, but we have got stuff to do. Now, later in the show, we are being joined by the fabulous Dr. Pippa Melgren, uh, and she is going to give us a little insight into uh, what she got wrong in her career and some of the lessons she learned from it. But before we get to Pippa, we are going to take a little detour. This week is going to be a little different in that we are only going to get one side of a story. Now, the reason for that is it's been extremely hard to find someone to come on and make the opposite case to what you're about to hear. So what I'd like to do is open this up to you, our audience. Once you've heard what our guest this week, Mark Spiegel, has to say about the topic at hand, if you feel strongly opposed to his views and can speak to why you think he's wrong, then please email me at podcast at realvision.com and we'll get you on the podcast to lay out the other side of the story. However, for now, this week's Adventures in Finance is going to focus on the bearish side of the Tesla miracle. The enthusiasm for Tesla's cars is undeniable. The Model S essentially created the luxury electric vehicle market, and on the back of that success, the rise of the company has been nothing short of extraordinary. The driving force behind that rise has been the compelling figure of Elon Musk. Now, Musk cut his entrepreneurial teeth in 1995 in partnership with his brother with a company called Zip2, the pair of them having borrowed $28,000 from their dad. Having sold Zip2 to Compaq a couple of years later, Musk then co-founded X.com, which later morphed into PayPal. 
but he was ousted as CEO a year later. Now, Musk's next project was SpaceX, a company he founded with the initial aim of growing food on Mars, but which has now expanded to landing humans on the Red Planet within 10 to 20 years, a broad window which, I have to say, is characteristic of Musk's timelines across all his companies. It wasn't until 2004, when he led the Series A round, that Musk became active in Tesla, and it wasn't until after the 2008 financial crisis that Musk became the company's CEO. Tesla stock has risen from $17 in 2010 to a high of $383 in June of this year. That's a 2,000% increase. And along the way, despite blowing through around $7 billion in negative free cash flow, the Tesla bulls have completely ignored the company's lack of current profitability and focused on both the promise of future profitability and a series of increasingly outlandish promises from the company's flamboyant CEO. However, Recently, the narrative has begun to change ever so subtly, and the press, which had fawned over Musk for years, has become far more sceptical and willing to challenge some of the more audacious claims from the company's CEO. With every major luxury car manufacturer set to launch their own models in direct competition with Tesla in the next 24 months, the bears may finally be gaining the upper hand. One of the most vocal bears is Mark B. Spiegel of Stanfield Capital Partners. But before we hear the bear case... Let's get Mark to very quickly lay out the bull case for Tesla. The bulls seem to believe that Tesla has very unique and special uh, technology that puts it ahead of everybody else in electric cars. They think electric cars will will become a huge thing around the world. And uh, they think Elon Musk is just the greatest guy in the world. And, And none of those things are true, by the way, but that's the bull case in a nutshell. Now, the bullishness around the Tesla stock seems to be based upon the idea that people are going to be buying electric cars hand over fist. And Tesla, with first mover advantage and huge customer loyalty, is supposed to be at the very forefront of that. Here's Mark. So as far as how big electric cars will be, with current technology, uh, almost nobody would buy an electric car except sort of a handful of, of real EV fanatics. Uh, if it weren't for uh, the carrot and stick uh, policies of various governments around the world, and the reason for that, the reason for that is obvious. They cost unsubsidized around twice as much as a conventional car. They typically have half the range, and you know, in the best possible case of you know of a supercharger, of which by the way there are others besides Tesla coming out, but it takes an hour to. To, to, to completely refuel the battery, whereas obviously you can refuel a car in five minutes. So right now, nobody would buy an electric car. Now, the next step in electric cars, probably in the early 20s, are solid-state batteries. Toyota has spent a lot of money on these. Um, it's real proprietary stuff. Uh, and, and, and actually, uh, James Dyson, the vacuum cleaner guy, says he's got some solid-state batteries. At any rate, at that point, you'll have uh, like really twice the range and much faster refueling time, and then electric cars will be in the ballgame. Solid-state batteries replace the liquid or polymer electrolyte found in current lithium-ion batteries with a solid. These batteries are smaller, have a higher capacity, and are potentially much cheaper to produce than current liquid-based lithium-ion batteries. Now, as far back as 2014, a company called SAC-T3 announced it was approaching a point where it could produce a battery with twice the density of current batteries at a fifth of the cost. They're also non-flammable and, in theory, could last longer and charge faster. 
they could also make Tesla's battery technology obsolete before it even gains a foothold. So let's assume that that everybody's going to have electric cars and I don't know, not everybody. Let's assume that they're real popular in 10 years. Well, first of all, Tesla doesn't even have that technology for solid state batteries. But even putting that aside, they've got nothing proprietary. They've got no moat. And what you've got is all of the OEMs out there, the other big automakers, who have to build and sell electric cars in order to continue to sell their very profitable uh, gasoline-powered cars. So they're pouring tons of money into electric cars. And what, what some people would say, well, Tesla has a four or five-year head start. No, it doesn't really, because the technology Tesla is using is, is not any more advanced than, in fact, in some ways, without getting too far into the weeds, it's actually behind the other cars that these other companies are all bringing out over the next one to three years. So basically, you know, there's an expression, you know, an old American expression, you know, pioneers get arrows in the back. Tesla is the pioneer who's going to get arrows in the back. You know, it's like Palm Pilot. You know, you first had your Palm Pilot. It was great. And then everyone else had them and made them phones. And that was the end of that company. Apart from Musk's undoubted ability as an advocate for Tesla, the company's biggest selling point has been the undeniable sex appeal of its cars, particularly as they've been stacked against competition, which has been lacking a little degree of design elegance, shall we say. That, however, is about to change. Yeah, I think that's I, it, that combined with, um, uh, with the fact that, that Elon Musk is probably the greatest stock promoter I've ever seen. And it's kind of amazing because he does it by mumbling his way through things. But, you know, whatever it is, people are just in love with the guy. And, and what's kind of funny is, you know, he's run all these other companies. He's had all these other companies. As far as I know, the guy has never, as far as I know, run a company profitably. Like ever. You know, So all the money he's made for his investors have been on hype stories, although obviously he sold a couple of his early companies to other people who did figure out how to run them profitably. But yes, I think, I think that's a great, I think that's a great thing. I mean, um, until this time, electric cars were sort of geeky looking and very slow and, you know, to his credit, he made it sexy, but you know, the thing is they've lost a ton of money selling these cars at a hundred thousand dollars each. And, you know, if, if, if Mercedes and BMW and, and Porsche, you know, um, uh, were willing to lose a ton of money, they could have brought out the same car. Now, in fairness, they probably, as did I, underestimated the demand for these sort of sleek, kind of cool electric cars. But even there, Tesla's the only player in that market, in the luxury end, and they've had pretty much no growth now for five straight quarters. They're sort of stalled out at a 100,000-car worldwide annual run rate, and that's the market for that thing, at least at the present time. And that's with no competition yet. The competition to which Mark refers is about to make a step change higher. And for Tesla, it's going to happen at the worst possible time as the company's mass market Model 3 finds itself in what Musk himself has described as production hell. Well, the Model 3 uh, was allegedly uh, allegedly going to be the, the, the first sort of sexy mass market electric car uh, promised at a starting price of $35,000 uh, before incentives. If, if you do some basic back-of-the-envelope math, you can see that it's incredibly unlikely that Tesla can build that car at a cost of less than probably the mid-40,000s. And you know, that's why I suspect 
he will never make more than a token handful of them available at a price less than that. So it, 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 it's not really going to be a mass market car at, 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 you know, at a starting price up more realistically in the 40s. So the second issue with the Model 3 is trying to build it as cheaply as he could. The design, while on the outside it looks okay, inside it's, it's a disaster. I mean, there's really no dashboard. Uh, there are no vents to manipulate. There's a touchscreen, which is offset to the right and below the driver. And there isn't even a speedometer except on this big touchscreen. So it's basically to operate almost anything in the car, including apparently the speed of the windshield wipers, you have to go through steps on this touchscreen menu. So, you know, I've been joking about it uh, on Twitter and, and calling it the, the texting while driving mobile, which is what it is. I mean, I, so I, I think it's a terrible design. So um, it's going to be a problem. Now, now, as far as production problems, you know, Musk promised, uh, I don't know, two years ago, he'd have this thing in production uh, this past summer. And then he held a big party to show that it was in production. But it's really not in production. When he made that promise, anyone who knew anything in the automotive industry said it would take a year longer to actually get this thing into production, or at least nine months longer, due to the testing involved. Well, he just he didn't test it. Not only did he not test apparently the assembly line, but he didn't even properly test the car. So he built a handful of them, several hundred of them, sold them to his employees, and you know, now I don't know if he's producing any. You know, he claims he's a few months late, but whatever he does produce is still going to be grotesquely undertested. I mean, as a comparison, Porsche is coming out with, with its electric car called the Mission E, which I think is going to be a fantastic car. The car is going to be out sometime in 2019, maybe late 2019, fall of 2019. So call it two years from now. The car was just spotted yesterday. I saw some footage online running laps at the Nürburgring. So, you know, a, a real car manufacturer extensively tests his car before he puts it in the hands of his customers. Musk doesn't. Musk treats every car like a, a piece of beta software. And if you're going to try to do that for a mass market car that, of, of which he claims he's going to sell hundreds of thousands, which I don't think he will, that's a different story. You know, that's a whole different deal than, than selling some of these, you know, country club, uh, you know, prestige Model S and Xs to people who are EV enthusiasts and, and just willing to put up you know, with a lot more nonsense from them. The idea of extensive testing prior to launching is something about which Tesla seems to have a different view when compared to traditional car manufacturers. And a case in point is the company's autopilot system. Well, so the history there is, when they first came out with the autopilot system, um, with a wink and a nod, they encouraged people to drive it without any hands. I mean, Musk would say that you can do it. And, you know, there were all kinds of videos out there. And, and Tesla actually actively promoted it. You can look at the Wayback machine on their website as being like, you know, hands-free autopilot and the whole thing, even though sort of buried somewhere in the manual, they said, well, you really need to stay alert and, and you know, you should keep your hands on the wheel. But it was sort of a wink and a nod situation. Um, then that guy got killed doing it exactly that way uh, down south. And, um, you know, there was this whole study that, that, the, that the U.S. government agencies did and stuff. But, but, you know, sort of along with that, that first system was really a, a Mobileye-based system, Mobileye being the, the company, the Israeli company that Intel bought recently. 
And then they had a falling out with Mobileye. And the Mobileye side of it was that Mobileye actually fired Tesla because they thought Tesla was encouraging reckless use of the system. Now, Tesla had another side of the story. It's never really been been clear which side it was. But, you know, knowing the history of Tesla, I tend to believe the other party until, <laughs> until proven otherwise. So, so at that point, Tesla had to come up with a complete new system on its own, this autopilot 2.0, the first one being 1.0. So it used a chip from NVIDIA and a bunch of cameras and radar sensors. And, you know, it builds the system into every single car and then charges people to actually activate it. I guess it's hoping that either when, if they don't activate it when they buy the car, they'll activate it later. And since he came out with this system, Musk has been promising that it will be software upgradable to a full self-driving car. And this is absolute nonsense on multiple levels. For one thing, NVIDIA, the company that makes the chip, which is the core of this thing, said absolutely not, that model chip can't do it. To the point where Tesla just put in a different uh, revised uh, NVIDIA chip for the core of the system after making all these promises about the first one. On the revised chip, NVIDIA says, absolutely not. That chip can't do it. We have a new chip coming out that can do it. It'll be out next year. I don't know the name of the chip. I don't own NVIDIA. But the, the point being that the supplier of the product is, is saying that Musk is full of shit on this. Secondly, every single expert there is on autonomous driving says you need to have LIDAR systems. LIDAR is sort of a laser sensing system in the car. In addition, to any cameras that you have and radar systems. And Tesla doesn't have any LiDAR system. And, and therefore, it's, it's not only not software, it's not software upgradable because it doesn't have the hardware. So there's a class action suit going on about this now. And it's actually an interesting liability for Tesla. So the way Tesla, they charge $5,000 for a, what's now called a driver assist system because they've got that spanking from the government the way they used to promote it. And then another $3,000 for upgrading it to, in the future, to full hands-free self-driving, which, as I said, they can't do. So they're going to get, there's a lawsuit going on, and it's not clear exactly, you know, what they're suing for. But at the end of the day, they could be liable not only to refund, you know, $3,000 or $8,000 to every single person who bought one of these things. And, and that number is, is probably, you know... In close to the hundred thousand range by now, they could be responsible to refund the price of the whole car if the class action were to claim, you know, hey, the only reason I bought this car is because you promised one day it would be fully self-driving. You know, now obviously that won't happen. There'll be a settlement, whatever. But there's a huge liability for them over this thing financially and and in terms of credibility. And then, of course, as you said at the beginning, there's a big safety liability here because People are still using this thing recklessly, as you said, and I posted them. Uh, there's YouTube videos that, 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 that are on the Internet that show these cars, you know, just like in the, middle of the, in the middle of a trip, just for some random reason, immediately swerving left across the center dividing lane, you know, or immediately swerving right towards a parked school bus or whatever with the owner sort of pulling the car in in the last second. So, yeah, it's a, it's a reckless system that no other auto manufacturer 
uh, would put on the road. But Musk feels that he can make his own rules as he goes along. He's an incredibly arrogant guy, and it's going to cost him in the end. Those other auto manufacturers are about to tighten the screws on Tesla, and the lineup of names waiting to challenge Tesla's dominance in the luxury electric vehicle market is a veritable murderer's row. A lot of people uh, mistake uh, EV love, electric vehicle love, for Tesla love. And yeah, I mean, driving an EV is very different from driving uh, a, a conventionally powered car. And a lot of people like the, the quiet and the instant torque that you get from an electric motor. And that's when people say, oh, I would never drive anything but my Tesla. What they're really saying is, even if they don't understand that yet, because they've never driven an electric car, but Tesla, what they're really saying is, I would never drive anything but an electric car again. If you look at the, the Jaguars, uh, the Jaguar, the Audis, the Porsche, the Mercedes that are all coming out, they not only in many ways that they have better technology than, than Tesla, and so, I mean, they have interiors that belong in a car costing, you know, sixty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and in in many ways they will outperform Tesla if, if that's your thing because Tesla does have incredible, uh, you know, straight line acceleration from like you know zero to sixty or zero to eighty or something like that. But it's really a a one trick pony uh, performance wise, and you can only do that trick once uh, flat out, and then you have to give the car a few minutes to actually cool down. The car can't run, you know, a single lap at speed on a racetrack. This has been proven by Car and Driver and, and other people. And the European cars, on the other hand, at least the Porsche and, and I presume the, the Audi and the Mercedes, these things have been out testing on the Nürburgring, which is, what, a, a 12-and-a-half-mile course or something, and, and, and running real laps there. And, you know, Porsche, for one, and I, I assume Audi have said, hey, we're going to have this thing be able to perform like any other car. You're not going to have to give it special treatment. And, you know, between that and, and much nicer interiors and more modern technology and, and, and at this point, much better driver assistance systems, yeah, Tesla is going to look like Palm compared to, you know, when, when the Android and the iPhones came out. This brings us back to the technology issue and the speed at which the competition is making Tesla's current state-of-the-art technology obsolete. Tesla's much-hyped Gigafactory in Nevada, when complete, will have the largest footprint of any building in the world at 15 million square feet, and it'll cost $5 billion to build. But according to Mark Spiegel, the facility has all the makings of a huge white elephant. Right. So Tesla likes to use the word, you know, our partner Panasonic. And when I originally had to set up the Gigafactory, they were allegedly going to have all these other partners contributing money into the Gigafactory, it'll be this vertically integrated thing. As far as I know, the only other company affiliated with it is Panasonic, and it's not a partner. It's a supplier to Tesla. Basically, Panasonic said, yeah, you know, we'll put our battery cell-making machines in there. We're going to keep the IP ourselves. It's going to be our IP. And, you know, if you give us a purchase commitment for these cells, we'll install the equipment, and it'll go on your books, Tesla's books, you know, as a long-term capital lease, which it has. So, you know, basically they're non-proprietary, well, they're proprietary to Panasonic. There's no IP to, to Tesla on these, on these battery cells. And that's what they're making at 30% of right now of the capacity they said they'd make. And meanwhile, there was just a report in the Korean paper the other day that Tesla is also thinking about buying battery cells, and this hasn't been verified yet, uh, from LG and, and Samsung. And in fact, 
Tesla did buy battery cells from Samsung to use on this Australian uh, backup power project. Point being that Tesla has absolutely nothing meaningfully proprietary in batteries, and it may, in fact, be the, be the high-cost buyer of battery cells in the world right now because of the commitments that it had to give Panasonic in order for Panasonic to install its machines you know, in that gigafactory. And it may be that, that GM and the Europeans are getting better pricing from LG and Samsung and probably eventually the Chinese than Tesla can get from Panasonic. So they may be at a price disadvantage because of that gigafactory is the short answer. And the, and the other point to make is, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, when solid state batteries come out, that gigafactory is completely obsolete other than the fact you know, that it's four walls and a roof because it's not set up to make solid state batteries. So you know, it's basically could just be a giant useless white elephant in five years. I've already mentioned Tesla's profitability, or to be more accurate, the lack of profitability, and that has been forgiven by investors thus far. But the reasons for that latitude are, at the wrong time, incredibly dangerous. Um, you know, it's a story stock. It's a story stock in a bull market. And look, even if this were a bear market, it could still be a successful story stock as long as people didn't do their homework. You know, I mean, I would love to, to get on this show with you, with the guy, the, the portfolio manager at Bailey Gifford or at Fidelity. I bet they won't do it because they have no facts on their side. So, you know, they're, they're buying into the story. And they're probably, to some extent, buying into the momentum also. You know, maybe one of these situations where, you know, the buyers are higher and the sellers are lower on this stock. It's possible. So, you know, that's the answer. It's a story, and they're not doing their homework to really dig into the story. Story stocks are great until the story runs out of steam and the facts start to matter. And that moment, judging by the shift in attitude of some of the mainstream media, may be close at hand. Charlie Grant of the Wall Street Journal cast a doubtful eye over Tesla's production delays in an article which was titled, The Truth is Catching Up with Tesla. And Charlie stirred the pot further with claims that vehicles on the company's supposed state-of-the-art production line were being assembled by hand. That shift in attitude towards Tesla and Musk is an important development given how much of the stock's strength relies on the cult of personality surrounding the company's CEO. There are two reporters, I, I call them the fanboy and the fangirl, even at Bloomberg on the website, and even they recently have, have written sort of questioning and, and, and critical articles about Tesla. And, you know, I notice on the comments section, sort of where the general public chimes in on all kinds of Tesla articles, there's a lot more skepticism about it now. So, yeah, things may be turning. And, you know, when Musk loses his credibility, it's all over for this thing because there are no fundamentals to support you know, to, to get people to pour the money into this company that it needs. And so, you know, once his credibility is gone, yeah, I mean, it, it could be a pretty quick spiral down for this company. So I think that, I think the, the story, people are understanding a little bit more about what's going on here. I mean, one issue, the one reason Musk has had, generally speaking, a fawning press for, you know, a very long time. And one reason is that, generally speaking, newspaper reporters tend to be very politically liberal. And what goes along with that is a, you know, a huge thing about global warming and electric cars saving the world and all that. You know, look, that's a discussion, you know, for a different time. But they tend to they tend to have been and to some extent still are extremely, um, you know, friendly towards Tesla and, and 
sort of willing to turn a blind eye to a lot of stuff because they feel Tesla's accomplishing such a noble goal. But things have been so egregiously bad from the company lately in, in terms of their BS that, that even those reporters, I think, are finally waking up a little bit. But trading Tesla from the short side has been a thankless task for a number of years. However, with the shift in narrative, it may be time for the bears to finally come out of hibernation. If the dam breaks, look out. So, um, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've been short Tesla, starting with a very tiny position, I think for probably like four years now. Um, I, I put on a tiny position here in the high 90s, and, you know, as I recall, didn't do much with it until it got north of 200, and, and then got a lot bigger, and, and then the higher it got, the bigger I got, is, is, is the short way to explain it. And um, as far as the percentage of the fund, when, when the Wall Street Journal ran a front-page story about the fraud going on with autopilot uh, a few mo- couple of months, maybe two months ago, when, about all the people who had left because they told Musk that the system was dangerous and couldn't do what he said it would do, and he said he didn't care, and he went out and said it could do those things anyway. When I saw that, I thought that might be the beginning of the end, and that's pretty much when I got as large as I've ever been in terms of being short the stock. And my plan now is, you know, not to get any smaller unless I have to do it just to just to keep it at that percentage of AUM. If for some reason it takes a, a huge pop on me, you know, from here. So my, my feeling is there are so many landmines to this company in terms of, you know, fundamentals, in, you know, internal fundamentals, competition. And, and Musk is just a complete wild card in a very bad sense of the word that I don't want to not have a, a large position and wake up one Monday morning and it gaps down a hundred dollars, you know, which it easily could. So I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that the Tesla is headed for bankruptcy. Now, it's not going to happen tomorrow because, you know, when you have a, as, as of this com- time of this conversation, when you have a $320 stock, you know, that's trading five, six million shares a day, you know, you could instantly call up a bunch of predatory hedge funds and say, hey, guys, uh, you know, can we sell you a uh, billion and a half dollars worth of stock, you know, down five or six percent? And they'll jump on it and they'll just blow the stock out the next day, but Tesla will have its money. But, you know, as you do that, you know, each each further offering, the price gets lower and lower and lower. And yeah, it, eventually it's a death spiral. My guess is Tesla's in Chapter 11 sometime, you know, like late 2020. But the stock can go a lot lower between now and then. You know, it could drop $100 a year between now and then. The bankruptcy for Tesla may seem like a hell of a stretch right now with the stock flying high. But a word of caution is warranted to anybody feeling brave enough to trade it from the short side. Getting the timing right is not only hard to do, but the possible dangers of being too cute are also elevated. Well, I'd say that, that um, number one, <clears throat> the way to make money in the market is, is to have a different opinion from, from prevailing consensus on the price, right? And, and that, that goes long or short. You know, if you think something's worth a lot more, you think something's worth a lot less. So at that point, you're basically saying the market's wrong. I've been absolutely amazed at how much uh, Musk has been able to get away with, number one. And number two, at how blind people are to what's coming down the pike uh, competitively versus what Tesla has in terms of anything, you know, proprietary and sort of a moat. I mean, to me, this stuff has been obvious for, you know, three or four years. And yet, you know, it's still not obvious, apparently, to, 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 the, to the 
you know, uh, portfolio managers at Fidelity and Bailey Gifford. So I, I don't have an explanation for that. But, you know, unless these people are absolute cretins, one morning they'll wake up and say, oh, what do I really own here? And that'll be it. I don't know when that morning is. Heck, if I knew when that morning was, I would have been long. The, I would have been long the stock for the last <laughs> three and a half or four years. And I'd short it the day before. I mean, this is not like a this is not a religious situation for me the way it is with with the musk musk muscovites or you know Tesleraians. You know, I want I think there's a great opportunity to make money here. And if I thought I could make it both ways, I would. But it's a very dangerous game to buy sort of a bubble stock scammy company because you think you're going to get out of it in time. You know, then you could be the guy who's long that morning it gaps down a hundred dollars, you know? Buying a bubble stock is always dangerous, but never more so than right before earnings announcements. Yesterday Tesla released their Q3 numbers, and for those who believe the company is heading for trouble, they contain plenty of data points that reinforce the bear case. Well, first of all, the, the, the results were even more disastrous than I than I could have anticipated. I mean, I figured on a gap basis they they lose around maybe you know close to 500 million in the quarter. They lost well north of 600 million, um, and and probably more important, he drastically reduced uh, guidance on Model Three production for 2018. Originally, it was going to be 5,000 a week uh, by the end of this quarter. But in other words, by the end of 2017. Now he, he said they're hoping to do it by the end of Q1 of 18, but he apparently has completely pulled guidance to be producing 10,000 a week by the end of 2018, which they had been saying and reiterating for, for the longest time. And now they're making up some retroactive um, bullshit that it was always their plan to not install that second line until this other line was up and running smoothly for a while. So he's backpedaling on that other guidance. Now, in fact, the guys I've read and spoken to who have done a lot of research on this thing tell me that there's no way in the world he'll be building 5,000 of these a week uh, by the end of Q1. And he probably almost certainly won't be able to build 5,000 a week even by the end of next year. And the other interesting piece of nonsense he put in here they had uh, uh, gross margins in the 18% range on their cars. Now, they calculate their gross margin in a way that no other automaker does. I've written about it on Seeking Alpha. You can find it there. I mean, if, if, if they calculated their gross margins the way the entire rest of the industry does, they'd be like in the mid-single digits. But take that as it is, they had an 18% gross margin in the quarter on these Model S's and S's. They claim that they will rapidly ramp to a 25% gross margin on the Model 3, which is a car that sells for half the price. This is absolutely the most nonsensical bullshit I've ever seen. I can't believe he, he thinks people are stupid enough to believe it, but to his credit, so far he's been right. You know, in the 40 years, I've been short the stock. So, so anyway, uh, it's really a disastrous report. Uh, any way you look at it. And, uh, you know, I, I stand by everything I said earlier in the interview, which is, you know, the equity in this company is is essentially a zero. And um, I think it's headed for bankruptcy. Well, it'll take a few years. You can sell a lot of stock on the way down if you've got a liquid stock, you know, that's that's in three digits. And, you know, they will sell a lot of stock on the way down. But I have zero doubt as to where this thing is going. So there you have it. 
the bear case on Tesla from one of the most vocal bears on the street. And again, as I said at the top of the show, I'd love for one of our audience to come onto the podcast and give us the other side to this argument. So if you're that person, please email me at podcast at realvision.com. And it's not only me, but Mark Spiegel wants to hear from you too. I spoke about Tesla at one point last year at a well-known conference and they asked a very well-known bull fund manager uh, to come on and debate me on stage about it. I mean, a Tesla bull. And uh, he refused to do it. And, and the answer is, I'm convinced that none of these people have really done their homework on the thing. So, you know, th- they don't want to confront facts. So at any rate, I hope someone will. I'm happy to come back on and, and do that. Here's how to find Mark. Well, the easiest way is I spend a lot of time on Twitter uh, talking about Tesla. Uh, and, and there my, my handle is, is my name. It's at Mark B. Spiegel, and that's M-A-R-K. Uh, B is in boy, and Spiegel is uh, S-P-I-E-G-E-L. And look, if someone wants to engage uh, with me on Tesla, that's fine. The first thing I would tell them is just IM me. I have open IM. And I'll send them a copy of my monthly fund letter, which lays out the case very clearly. And if they find a factual problem with anything I've, I'm ri- I've written there, I'm, I'm very open to it. Now. Regular listeners will no doubt be very well aware that we like to send our guests to Mars on one of Elon Musk's SpaceX rockets. And so how could we possibly pass up the opportunity to send Mark Spiegel on one of these uh, one-way flights to the Red Planet? So here's my conversation with him where we find out which movie, book, music, piece of technology and what inspirational quote he would take with him on that one-way ticket to Mars. Uh, And I'm fairly sure Elon would probably even comp his trip if it meant him staying up there. So, Mark, ironically, um, as we tend to do in these shows, we've, we've sent a whole bunch of financial luminaries up to Mars on one of nothing, none other than our friend Elon's rockets. <laughs> and as much as, it, as much as it may pain you, I'm going to do the same to you. I'm going to stick you in one of his rockets. Hopefully um, you won't consider the build quality. But in there with you, I am going to allow you to take uh, one film, one CD, one book, one piece of technology and a famous quote, which I will get lovingly needle-pointed for you to hang on the wall as you stare out the windows at the Red Planet. So um, I'm going to start off, if I can, with, uh, with the movie. Which movie would you take with you? Well, this would be the film I would take anywhere, which would be uh, Kubrick's uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Just, just ironically, it would be space-related in this case because <laughs> I'd be going to Mars. And, and, and why that film? What is it about that film that resonates with you so much? That film is, is it's like on another level of filmmaking. It's absolutely magical. I mean, I first saw it, I don't know, when I was maybe seven years old in the movie theater, and, and I can revisit it every few years. And it's just on, an, it's just on another level. It's just on, I mean, you know, there are a handful of films kind of on that level. You know, Apocalypse Now, I'd throw on there, and, and maybe even the original Blade Runner. But that's just that's just it's a great film it's just magical it's 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 what it says about man and 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 it's just fantastic yeah you you've inspired i haven't watched that film for must be over a decade so i'm going to dig that out again okay um <laughs> now how about a book a little bit of reading for you what what book are you going to take with you well since i'm going to be on mars for the rest of my life you know it, it can't be something with a plot that's that's going to bore me so i guess what i would do is is download all of wikipedia to my iPad and, and, <laughs> and just read it from, from A to Z. Well, I guess you could sit up there on Mars just quietly messing with people's heads and make changes to all the entries just to give yourself something to do. <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. <laughs> You'll be the first guy to update yeah. the Tesla page when it goes bankrupt, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> all right, now this is my favorite question, which is why I've saved this for the last of the three, but, but which, which CD would you take up with you? I'm always fascinated to hear which music people would choose. I would take uh, The Who's Quadrophenia. Great choice. It's, that's it's a my great favorite. Uh, it's my favorite. I mean, there are great classical albums, but I, that's what I would take. Yeah, no, I, I, I have no, I have no problem with you doing that. Um, okay, a piece, <laughs> a piece of technology. I know it's not going to be a Model S, but what, which piece of technology would you take up to uh, to Mars with you? Well, assuming the trip to Mars was planned, so I have all the life support, <laughs> uh, you know, systems I would need. I guess, and I'm there alone, right? Is that correct? I'm afraid so. Well, actually, I think Dr. Harold Malmgren's up with you. Uh, Kyle Bass is up there with you. You've got Jim Rogers. You've got plenty of people to talk to. All right, well, they're all guys. So I guess the, I guess the only <laughs> other piece of, of technology I would need uh, would be a, a really good, state-of-the-art sex robot. <laughs> okay, well, listen, I, I, I don't even want to get into the arm wrestling that will go over that if you take that up with you, but uh, we will allow you the sex robot. As soon as it's made, I promise you we'll ship one up to you. Uh, all right, last, last but not least, the, uh, the lovingly needle-pointed quote. Which, what's that going to say? Well, you know, if I'm on Mars, I think it should probably say something um, such as, um, Houston, I, I hope we don't have a problem. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's definitely the most original set of uh, items we've had taken up with us. I... I'm still trying to get a couple of images out of my head from that whole uh, thing. Um, but uh, but I, I look forward to the day when uh, when Elon gets this rocket up and running and we can actually uh, try this out. I, 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 presumably, you won't, uh, you won't rely on the autopilot to get you up there. By the way, you noticed that when they asked him if he wanted to go up on it, he was like, well, I think we'd send the other people up first. That, that seriously <laughs> happened. <laughs> He's not, he's not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, it's been such a joy talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, and I look forward, hopefully, to finding uh, a nice juicy ball for you to debate. Uh, thank you very much. Likewise, uh, Grant. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. It was a lot of fun. All right. Well, now it's time for our Things I Got Wrong segment. And joining me this week is a dear friend, Dr. Pippa Malmgren. I mean, any real vision... Regular listeners and viewers will know exactly who Dr. Pippa Malmgren is. Uh, she's been an advisor to the Bush presidency. She's the founder of H Robotics, and she's just an all-around champion. And Pippa is joining us this week from uh, Washington, D.C. Pippa, uh, I can't believe that we haven't actually had you grace this segment yet. How, how have you slipped through the net for so long? Well, I don't know. Ducking and diving, traveling a lot. <laughs> Oh, you know, I gave you the perfect chance to say that it's because you'd never made a mistake, but uh, clearly you're not going to try that one on me then. I'm not. I'm definitely not. Well, well. So, so let's talk about let's talk about the thing you got wrong. I mean, it, you, you've had plenty of different phases of your career involving a lot of different worlds. So I, personally, I'm fascinated to see which of those worlds this uh, the thing you got wrong is going to come from. <laughs> well, I was going to give you two examples. Um, one was actually a market moment, and it was when I was the chief currency strategist at Bankers Trust. And, you know, I really learned a lot about why it matters. What's your degree of conviction about something? It's not enough to say I have a view. It's important to say what's your conviction. 
And I went into a meeting with clients with my boss with an incredibly high degree of conviction that uh, Bob Rubin, who was Secretary of the Treasury at the time, would absolutely, definitely not intervene in dollar-yen to strengthen the yen. And I had built my whole reputation on being right about politics and policy, and particularly on dollar-yen. In fact, at the time, I remember the prop traders uh, in New Zealand and Australia had bet quite a lot of money on me and my views. In fact, they made so much money. One of the members of the team was John Key, who went on to become the prime minister of New Zealand. And he made so much money on some of the trades that I was advising on that they actually bought a boat and named it the Pippa. I was like, (laughs) okay. This is like I have to get out of being like a strategist and become a trader because right. we don't make money on the strategy side. All these guys are making enough money to buy a boat. Anyway, so I really had a lot riding on this. And so I'm sitting there in front of all these clients and my boss saying, absolutely, definitely, this is not going to happen. Well, my boss looks up from his pager and says, Pippa, Bob Rubin just intervened in dollar yet. <laughs> no, while and you were in the meeting. Oh, well, we're sitting right in front of the clients. You know, I mean, like, it's just a blow to the chin, you know. And I remember I was really devastated because I had zero explanation as to how this could possibly have happened. And what I learned was that actually all the clients were incredibly forgiving. And far from, you know, chucking me out of the job, if not the window, I was really shocked that they said, okay, well, what do you think now? And I was like, why do you care what I think if I got it that wrong? And I realized that, you know, everybody gets it wrong. And really good, you know, investors understand that. And and they appreciate when you're at a super high degree of conviction and you stand out there on that limb, knowing that sometimes it will go awry. And really the test is how quickly can you recover? So that was a massive lesson for me and, and a big mistake, a very public mistake. You know, that's, it's, that's so interesting because you're absolutely right. Everybody in, in markets is, is almost expected to have a view on everything. Um, and it's very, very rare that anybody, you say, you know, what do you think on this? And they say, you know what, I don't really have an opinion. It's really rare. And, and I think we all kind of feel almost duty-bound to come up with something, uh, to have a view on, on anything we're asked about. It's, it's, it's amazing. But I, I've been fascinated equally to that that idea of okay well what now because markets move on people move on and in my experience the times when people kind of get it get after you for calls you've made is when they followed you blindly without really doing the work themselves and they just kind of thought oh well smart person said do this i'm going to do that they don't really understand the reasoning behind it and so they can't adapt when it goes wrong so i think it's always really important when things go wrong, as they did for you on that on that day, sitting in that meeting, that's exactly your clients asked you exactly the right question, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you were wrong. What now? Well, and I realized the the question is not just what's your view. The question is what's your degree of conviction in the view you have. That's a that's a much more important question even than what is the view. But but when you know when your level of conviction is high, uh, and and you get it wrong, how do you? How do you go about – because you, you kind of have to tear up everything you thought beforehand that, that, that gave you that high sense of conviction. How do you go about, okay, right, I need to go back to the very beginning and rethink this completely because my foundations are wrong? Well, that's exactly what I did. So I 
got on the phone to all my contacts in Washington. It took me a couple of months to work out what had happened. And uh, what had happened was there was, I can't remember the whole circumstances at the time, but the Chinese were putting pressure on the White House because Bill Clinton was about to do a state visit to China. And he was apparently taking like 400 people with him. And the Chinese basically said, if you don't do this, we're going to cancel the trip. And so <laughs> they went, uh, okay. And remember, at that time, the Chinese were the biggest buyers of U.S. treasuries. They had, they were just kind of starting to flex their muscle. And, you know, there were jokes that actually it was a bet over a card game a bunch of, among a bunch of Politburo members. That I don't know for sure. But definitely <laughs> it was not – it was so out of left field. It was something I couldn't have anticipated. But, boy, it made me respectful of, you know, how politics works. We, we in markets are a little narrow-minded about what really drives markets. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it, it seems to me that everywhere you look now, there is an opportunity for a decision like that based on something that none of us would have any clue was going to happen on the political yeah. side. Those those things feel like they could come out of anywhere right now. Exactly. So so that's my that's one story. I have another one if we have oh, yeah. time. Hey, listen, it's called Things I Got Wrong, not Thing I Got Wrong. So oh, okay. hey, let's go for that second one. <laughs> so the second one is really interesting. It's quite a sensitive topic at the moment because of – all the headlines about uh, sexual harassment going on. And I have been really thinking about this because I entered uh, two fields that were really pretty butch, you know, politics. I started out working in the White House and then on trading floors. And I was the only woman uh, at the time in, in both of those places. And but then I was in the White House as the president's advisor under George W. Bush, the only woman on the National Economic Council. And and I look back now and I, I had, you know, the same moments everybody had. I remember sitting next to a senator when I was 21 and he wrote his phone number on the corner of the Financial Times and tore it off and put it in my hand. And I was like, what do you even do with that? Like, does that mean he'd like to hire me? Or, you know, you're so naive when you're young. You just totally don't get it. Um, and I once sat next to, um, well, let's just say, I won't say who exactly, but someone that's rather famous for having been unmeasured in his approach to these things and became the head of a global global um, international institution uh, until he was fired. And um, I sat next to him at a conference where we were both speaking. And I remember he just kept edging his chair over toward me. And I was like, he's going to be in my lap if I don't move. So I physically stood up and moved out of the way. And so, you know, I, I've kind of been on, on that side and I understand it. But what I see now is that in order to cope with a lot of that and to really excel in what was a guy's world, I kind of made a decision to become a guy. And I look back at my photos and I can see I'm in a navy blue suit, haven't got any makeup on or very little. I've kind of taken all of my femininity out of the picture. Now, on the one hand, it worked because I made it to the top of several different fields. But on the other hand, I now realize that what I also left behind were all the qualities that I bring to the table that are not very masculine, which includes thinking with the other side of the brain, using your intuition, um, the soft skills of diplomacy, how to intuit that people are not getting along for a reason that's not logical, but nonetheless real. And so it was only after I had kind of left institutional life that I was sort of able to revert to my true self. 
But it was a mistake in the sense that I think that I didn't bring as much into the rooms I was in because I checked all that stuff at the door. And that if, if, you know, being harassed about being a female in those environments was an issue, then it's really my obligation to draw my, my boundaries and my lines a lot harder. Luckily, I, I never was faced with that, but I think that women are. And so the question is, how do you navigate when you bring all that into the room and you're going to get some reactions and how do you contain that? So I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I made the mistake of choosing to become a guy you know, and even now people approach me about boards and you can hear they're really looking for a man in a dress, right? They don't <laughs> right. really want, you know, what all the things that a woman might bring to the table. And um, and I think this is really worth thinking about. And, and I, I think to myself, you know, should I not have given in to that and, and become more guy-like or, you know, should I have stuck to my guns as it were? And uh, so I don't know. I think maybe that was a mistake, and I'm hoping women now won't have to repeat that mistake. But do you think it's, it's to to me that that is a mistake now? But perhaps back then it wasn't a mistake, simply because things have changed, are changing. You know, do, do you get the sense? Um, because you know that you and I, you and I, are good friends, but you are one of the most accomplished people I know, and I, and I mean that in the true sense of the word. And so. To, to you would think in an, in a normally functioning world, the accomplishment would be gender neutral, right? The, the, these are the these are the facts. This is this is what this person has achieved. This is what yeah. this person can do. Do you find when people do approach you to be on boards and stuff, do you, do you still get the feeling that it's almost okay? Right, we, we need to tick a box here. We need a woman, and um, and and if she could be a redhead, then that's even better. That's another that's another minority we can check. Do, do you still do you feel that, or, or or do you feel like you know you've almost you you have got through that, and and this is this is completely about you still. Uh, I think that uh, you know for for big visible positions, there's still a little tendency to say you know let's tick the minority boxes. And, you know, recently I just saw uh, they did a survey of Oxford University. I think they only admitted one black person in the entire year. And everybody's like, this makes no sense in this day and age. That, that is just unacceptable. And, you know, raises the question again that we all thought maybe we'd already dealt with, which is, you know, how do we how do we make a balance? You know, how, and how do you not lower standards but open the door wider and I think it's a very interesting question because if you really look at most institutions, you'll find they recruit from very narrow pools. And I remember the other day I was talking to someone, they said the top five law firms in the United States recruit from only five colleges. And they right? think they're diverse because they're five. And you're like, really? So, you know, I think we've still got a big question out there. How do we get more diversity of thought? Um, but I also think in my case, you know, I had to earn a lot of armor. Let's put it that way. You know, I did a PhD. I worked for the president. I was the chief currency strategist. Like I had a lot of armor on, so it made hard for people to have a go at me. And, yeah. uh, that's, you know, that's one of the ways I think that, uh, women deal with this is they just acquire armor. So you, nobody can, you know, it becomes hard to take you on because you have the credentials in place. 
But, yeah. you know, what do you do during the years when you haven't yet got the credentials? This is really the question. How do you acquire those credentials and be taken seriously along the way? Well, uh, and, and, for, and, for, and for people following you, you know, when, when you talk to, to young women uh, and share your experiences with them, what advice do you give them in terms of how they deal with, with a similar set of problems but in a, in a wholly different world? Well, again, you know, it come, I've got lots of young women who uh, come up to me, particularly when I give speeches. And um, I think they're, they're very excited at seeing a woman on stage. And their first question is, how do I get there? How do I get right. on stage? And typically, they're only about 10% of any given room that I'm talking to. So these women are ambitious and they're driven. Um, usually, interestingly, their second question is, where did you get those shoes? And, <laughs> and you know what? I take that very seriously because you can be ambitious and care about what kind of shoes you're wearing at the same time. You see, this is exactly what I mean by bringing your femininity to the table. You know, right. When I give my speeches, I always wear my Louboutins on the stage because the red sole shows all the way to the back of a big room. And it's right. a statement right, about this is a female talking to you. This is not a guy. And so, you know, though I think the women are very attracted to the idea. I want to be competent and confident and powerful and able to project, but I don't want to stop being the female that I am. And I like Louboutins, you know. So <laughs> why, why can't we do both? Well, look, there's absolutely no, there's absolutely no reason why you can't, uh, and and you've proven that beyond any shadow of a doubt. I've I've seen you on those stages. Uh, <laughs> I can't say I've ever really kind of noticed in great detail the shoes. But I promise I will pay more attention in the future. <laughs> anyway, it's it's always so much fun talking to you. Hopefully, you and I get to do it in person again soon, somewhere in the world. Um, but for now, th- thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Well, there you have it. You know, sometimes the lessons about finance aren't about finance. They are are much broader in application, and uh, and that conversation with Pippa certainly fits that bill. Well, that really concludes this episode of Adventures in Finance. Uh, Before we go, obviously, you're getting used to this now. You can all sing along in the back. Uh, The legal disclaimer, anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research chart your technicals place your stops and please always trade responsibly next week our feature segment is all about the fed with donald trump set to announce his new pick for fed chair this week we will discuss if the fed is about to change in a very major way and we'll be joined by danielle DiMartino booth author of fed up and former assistant to richard fisher at the dallas fed and miles kimball eaton professor of economics at the university of colorado boulder he's a quartz columnist and an independent blogger And they will discuss two very different views about the Federal Reserve. So I look forward to hearing that. In the meantime, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show or anything else you've heard on Adventures in Finance, we would love to hear from you. So please send us an email or a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And again, one more plea for any Tesla bulls out there who who fancy a crack at the title, please let us know and we will talk to you about getting on the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard this week, please subscribe to us on iTunes. James, over to you for the review thing. Yeah, yeah. If, uh, if you would like to uh, leave a review on iTunes, we greatly appreciate that. We like hearing uh, how much everyone likes Adventures in Finance. Or doesn't. It's entirely up to you. Yeah, you I prefer, only have to comment if you like it. I prefer the ego boost, personally. I know you do. I know you do. And this is something you and I need to work on. All right. If you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and, of course, podcast episodes, then please follow us on Twitter, at Real Vision. 
You will also find us in the depths of Facebook and LinkedIn if you search for Real Vision. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And if you feel so inclined, you can also follow me at AIF James. That's it from us. We will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com